I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's James Jacobs, and we're exploring the life of one of classical music's favorite composers, Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, a composer who valued friendships and hard work and whose life came to a tragic end at the age of 53. For me, James, Tchaikovsky is almost everything. I love his music. I love performing it. If I had to die tomorrow or if you had to send me to a deserted island, I would bring the music of Tchaikovsky. That's how much he means to me. So, John, when was the first time you heard Tchaikovsky? What was your, what was your gateway Tchaikovsky? Well, it would be like, I think a lot of people, that would be the Nutcracker. Starting from when I was like six years old, my grandmother took me every year to see the ballet. A great company that was with the Florida Orchestra, so a full orchestra, and just six-year-old me hearing the music, seeing these huge sets, it just kind of set something in motion for me. And although I love Tchaikovsky today, I didn't always love him the same way I do now, but it was definitely, I think for like, like most people, the Nutcracker. And I imagine once you started playing Tchaikovsky, then your appreciation for his music just went up exponentially. Absolutely. The more you play it, the more you listen to it, the more you spend time with it, the more you learn, and just the more, for me, that I just became so into Tchaikovsky. I remember when I was a kid, my brother, my older brother, would uh, bring home these records, and uh, I was seven or eight, nine, and I remember hearing um, 1812 Overture and Romeo and Juliet and the Violin Concerto, the Nutcracker Suite, and I think those are the first four Tchaikovskys for me. There is something so direct about the way he communicates Tchaikovsky, definitely, as you said, very direct in his writing, and we're going to get into all of that. One thing that I think is also appealing, and as we get into this now, Tchaikovsky's life was kind of a slow burn. He was not shot out of a cannon like Mozart or Beethoven, a child prodigy, touring Europe and doing all these things. He was born in May of 1840 in Vodkinsk. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but it's this town in rural Russia and thinking about it in today's perspective, by car today, Moscow is 18 hours away. St. Petersburg is 23 hours away. So there's not a big orchestra in town. His family was also non-musicians. So already from the start, there isn't this musical influence in his life. And it's this slow burn of this all the way up to in his 50s being just an absolute master in uh, composition. So he came from this, you know, military family, right? And um, and you wonder, what was it? I mean, that it's it's amazing that he came comes from this, you know, rather unremarkable middle class military background, in the you know the boonies of, of Russia, and somehow he creates this incredible rich inner world that's so uh, fraught with emotion that puts in that he put into all of his pieces, uh, from these sort of unassuming, you know, origins. I think one reason the music sounds the way it does is because when he was growing up, he was like six or seven. There is this governess, Fanny Durbach, basically a, a young woman who would teach this, the kids lessons and everything. Tchaikovsky, they thought he was too young, but she taught him fluently. He could speak uh, French and German when he was uh, six or seven years old. And at this time, he started receiving some sparse piano lessons, but the family bought this giant machine 
called an orchestrion, and I'll put a link in the show notes page, a video of this thing. It's basically an organ slash percussion machine slash piano that would play on its own automatically different orchestral work. So this was his kind of introduction to to music. And I think that homogenous kind of cohesive sound of that translated into his own music. And at this time, he's probably not hearing a lot of live music. And that probably gave him a certain sense of a, really a different perspective of, of what an orchestra could sound like. And, um, and he uses the orchestra really unlike anyone else. And so that explains a lot of it, the idea that it's this sort of machine that creates this one gigantic sound that's very, that's rich, that's richly textured within that sound. But um, it's, but it's, uh, but it's this unit. Oh, yeah. And I'll talk about Fanny Durbach, this governess, a couple of times. So like in 1848, when Tchaikovsky is eight years old, the family moves to Moscow. And there are a lot of letters, correspondence in Tchaikovsky's life. I think literally thousands that we have access to today. And he wrote several to Fanny, who this um, he had great affection for, saying, oh, I miss you so much. I am, Don't worry, but I'm reading this and I'm learning that. And they move to Moscow. He's writing her. He gets sent to boarding school very far away. He's supposed to be a civil servant. And like in 1854, now he's 14 years old. There's already a lot of missing information in his life, musically, but he's still interested in music. And he writes this. This is what we know as the Anastasia Waltz, and it is the oldest surviving music we have of Tchaikovsky. And Anastasia, the name for the piece comes from Anastasia Petrova, who was another governess, the next one in Moscow, because, of course, Fanny stayed behind. What's remarkable about that is it sounds like Tchaikovsky. And I know that sounds obvious, but if you listen to a work by the teenage Mozart or Beethoven, it doesn't necessarily sound like them, or Mendelssohn. You know, it it takes composers usually a while to find their voice. But, you know, I could easily imagine that in Sleeping Beauty. You know, I could (laughs) And that is the thing for artists, not just musicians or composers, but writers and sculptors and painters as well. They have something that they've uniquely identified that they love whatever it is in their art. And for Tchaikovsky here, that sense of longing, that sense of melody that's always moving, there's always some kind of tension happening, positive or negative. And right now, Tchaikovsky is remarkably average. He likes music. A lot of people at his boarding school liked music. He's writing stuff. But no one sees this genius in him quite yet. And he continues his schooling. He's 19. He graduates. He goes into the civil service, realizes two years later, this is awful. I don't want to do this. And then he decides, I'm going to really study music, really pursue this. And now he's about 22 years old. And he enters into the St. Petersburg Conservatory. He comes in as an average student. He leaves this remarkable professional. And still at this time, though, he's not this barn-burning huge force in music, right? Right. And also the, the St. Petersburg Conservatory was almost as new to the conservatory as Tchaikovsky. I mean, it was a brand new institution. And so he was there really at the sort of birth of 
what could be considered Russian music, and they were still making it up. They were still trying to figure out what that was. And in a way, it's it's strangely analogous to what was happening in the United States at the same time. We're, we're, you know, over here, we were also sort of making it up at that time. And so his being steeped in that, I think it gave him some freedom to really sort of, you know, find his own voice really early rather than sort of giving him this anxiety that you find in, in like, say, the Germanic composers where they feel like, oh, you have to sound like one of the greats before you can break through it. And Tchaikovsky was always Tchaikovsky. That's right, especially with Russia, as I've seen it being referred to at this time, a musical desert. There isn't this tradition of, like you're saying, in Germany or in Austria or even in France and all these other countries. And they're trying to find this national identity, and Tchaikovsky is just trying to do his own thing. Speaking of his own thing, this is his first orchestral work that we have. It's called The Storm. This was never performed, I believe, in his lifetime. I think his composing teacher even was pretty critical of it. But let's take a listen to this. You can really hear some key things that appear later in his masterpieces. So he's about 25 years old now. He finishes conservatory. And just as you said, he was brand new at this brand new conservatory. The next conservatory, Moscow Conservatory, is now being founded. And Tchaikovsky is invited to be a music theory teacher. And there he has some stability. He's able to compose more. And what's really interesting is that Tchaikovsky also got a separate job as a music critic. And Tchaikovsky was a person that we know who was very sensitive to criticism. And if you read some of his articles that he wrote, he was always very nice in his music criticism. Sometimes he would be kind of stern or maybe constructive, but it was never trying to tear down the musician or whatever it was that he was reviewing. It is interesting how many musicians are also wonderful writers, and he was definitely one of them. And uh, and the way he writes about music and articulates his own feelings throughout his life is so key to understanding him. And it's also interesting, you know, to hear Tchaikovsky's relationship to other music, because I think he always felt, even when he was at the, you know, considered the greatest musician in the world, there was always a bit of an outsider status to him that he, that he felt and that he considered himself as, I think. Definitely outsider. There was this thing in Russia at this time called The Five, a group of composers. And it feels like they were kind of... And kind of in a negative way, they were gatekeepers. If you weren't doing what they thought was the best, if it wasn't the most nationalist music for Russia, it was harshly put down. And your music wouldn't, it wasn't like you were being censored, but your music would not be performed. So there was definitely this outsider aspect to Tchaikovsky's life. Yeah, he was his own. And I think and this is definitely what makes him in line with the other really great genius composers is that they don't really fit in comfortably uh, to their own time and their own milieu. Um, there's, there's always a little, they're already sort of set apart because they, in a way they're making their own rules. I mean, they're by, with their, with their compositions, they're uh, forming new musical algorithms as it were, you know, new, new boundaries of what's possible. And so the last thing they need is to be part of a committee, you know, part of a, That's part. right. Part of a committee. And thankfully, a little bit later on, in his 30s and 40s especially, this gatekeeping five were 
much less influential, is kind of broken up at that point. But now he's 29, and something you mentioned before that was an early introduction, something that I think everyone knows if they don't know the name of it, they've heard the music of it. That is his Romeo and Juliet fantasy overture. He's 29, he writes this, and I believe it was received pretty positively, even among these five composers. And it was kind of his first big jump into, well, this is a real composer who's going to really do something. He has some success there. He's now in his 30s. And this is what I'm talking about with a slow burn. He's working. He's not stopping. He's continuing to compose. And this would pay off in the end. So he's in his 30s now. And he writes at age 35 his piano concerto number one, which I absolutely love. But we mentioned before he was very sensitive to criticism, right? Yes, very much. And that definitely affected uh, the, fa- the fate of this work. So in 1875, he places for Nikolai Rubinstein and some people, and he recounts years later in a letter to someone we'll be talking about, Nadezhda von Meck, he was so upset about what happened when he played this music for them. He said, at the piano, I played the first part. Then, not a single word, not a single comment. If you knew the unbearable position of a man when he gives his friend the food of his product, and he eats and is silent. And most importantly, I did not need a verdict about the artistic side. I needed comments about the technique for virtuoso piano. Rubinstein's eloquent silence was very significant. He said to me, My friend, how can I talk about the details when I am disgusted? Tchaikovsky goes on saying, I armed myself with patience and played to the end. Silence again. I stood up and said, well, what? Then a stream of speeches poured from the mouth of Nikolai Grigoryevich. At first quiet, then more and more pressed into the tone of Jupiter Thunderbolts. It turned that my concerto was no good. It is impossible to play. He ends it saying, well, in short, an outsider who would have come into this room might have thought that I was a maniac, a talentless and meaningless scribe who came to the famous musician to pester with his. You know, that's such an illuminating document toward um, that really illustrates how lonely it must be to be a great composer. You know, when you're writing something that you know is good and is good and turns out to be one of your most popular works and one of the most one of the most celebrated piano concerts of all time and you know it and yet you can't get that you you can't get that satisfaction at the moment you can you need you need yourself you need a clone of yourself to tell you you know who <laughs> to tell you what's what's good and bad about the work um and uh he had to be his own mentor in in that way so he has this great success with his first piano concerto. He's getting more love, as we're seeing in Europe and now the United States, than he is by some of his own critics in Russia. He's getting to his late 30s. Again, it's a slow burn. He's written several symphonies now in 1877 when he's 37. Quite an eventful year for Tchaikovsky. He's written his symphony number no. four. He would get his most significant patron, the patroness Nadezhda von Meck, and he would also get married. And it ends in absolute disaster. And part of the problem is that it was already at that time, I believe, widely known and accepted that Tchaikovsky was gay. Yeah. And uh, so he was, I mean, but of course, that was a struggle that uh, really continued for another century, at least, (laughs) Um, you know, for, you know, because it, it helped on so many levels, socially and, and in terms of establishing a household, you know, to get married, even if it wasn't within your orientation. 
even though it was actually in some ways easier in Russia at that time than it was in other places, it was still um, it's it was still a challenge, and it was still something to be dealt with and overcome and create lots of you know heartache. This was very traumatic for him. Even in the same month he got married, he was writing to Nadezhda Famek saying, I already wrote to you that I married not because of an attraction of the heart, but because of a certain, to me, incomprehensible chain of circumstances, which fatefully led me to a most difficult um, alternative. Reject this woman or get married. And he says he chose a ladder to do all the things that you just mentioned and fulfill you know, his father's wishes as well. It ended very poorly, and then he actually left the country that same year with his brother. He just had to escape. He was having a lot of um, – just a lot of challenges. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 Tchaikovsky was basically searching for home all his life. And he would be searching for home for the next many, many years after this. He was traveling through Europe, almost always alone. His celebrity is increasing throughout this, but he's just – just traveling and kind of living, not in total isolation, but just going from place to place, riding piece to piece. And each place that he goes influences him, whether it's Paris or whether it's Italy, and they all find its way into the, into his music, uh, you know, writing sort of musical postcards, if you will. And, and you, if you hear, especially his ballets, you can hear the colors of, of his travels. But you also hear, in some ways... A man who, you know, had a Russian Russian accent, if you will, to his music, but he, he was sort of a, a citizen of the world, uh, musically speaking. I like that citizen of the world because he's he's writing masterpieces every couple of years. He's at 38. He has his violin concerto, one of the most exuberant, explosive endings to a concerto that I know of. A couple years later, he's got his serenade for strings. He's writing ballet and it's hard we have to remember Tchaikovsky wrote three ballets and just these three ballets are some of the most performed and influential works in the entire field of ballet absolutely and uh, you know in those three works there's almost a sort of lexicon <laughs> you know those three works created created what ballet music could be if you love the ballet music of Prokofiev or Stravinsky you couldn't get there without Tchaikovsky. I mean, Tchaikovsky was the was the the way, I mean, in a way you could say that Tchaikovsky was responsible for their being, for ballet still being an art form, I think, you know. Every year, you know, the Nutcracker will sometimes pay for up to 50% the entire yearly budget for a ballet company. And... He was sort of like the Shakespeare of ballet. Yes. And so he's incredibly influential for that. And even as musicians, we've played this music. When I've done runs of his ballets... It's it's a treat every single night. I've always just loved it. Sometimes if you're doing something in opera or a different ballet, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like, okay, this is enjoyable, but it's work sometimes. Okay, James, Tchaikovsky, he's 45 years old, and now I have a question for you. Do you want to live a day in the life of Tchaikovsky? I've got his schedule right here in front of me. Okay, well, let's see. Let's So pick a day. Okay, maybe I'll explain it to you first before you tell me you want to live it or not. So Tchaikovsky... He's 45. He is now kind of done with traveling. He settles down in the small town outside of Moscow. Now, this is from a book, a collection called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. It's a great book. It's basically a compendium of schedules of artists, and that includes musicians, composers, but mostly, I think, also writers, sculptors, painters, everyone in the arts, and was able to, through research and everything, 
figure out what their daily schedules were like. And Tchaikovsky was, he had a kind of fixed schedule from this point. He would wake up early and give himself about an hour between 7 and 8 to have tea, have a smoke, and read. Then he goes on a walk, but this walk is no longer than 45 minutes. So now it's 9.30, and he sits down to go to work. But he says he wants to finish the unpleasant tasks before he gets to the pleasant ones like composing. So he's dealing with correspondence, probably talking to publishers, friends, coordinating performances, things like that. Then he sits down to compose all the way up to noon. Precisely at noon, he would take lunch. Now, this is where Tchaikovsky, this is what he's kind of known for. He goes on a walk, not for a half an hour or an hour or an hour and a half. He goes for a walk for two hours, regardless of the weather, no matter what. He thought it was imperative for your health, bordering on superstitious. This was very common, going on walks, that is, um, to other composers and artists. He felt it was very important for creativity. He even said, the seed of a future composition usually reveals itself suddenly in the most unexpected fashion. And this would often happen on walks. He would write um, little ideas down. So now we've gone on a walk for two hours, and now he gets to enjoy tea, uh, read the newspaper, or some journals. Now it's five o'clock. He settles down for two more hours of work. He's composing. He's fleshing things out, orchestrating. And now it's eight o'clock. He has dinner, and then he loved playing cards. So he would play cards with friends or even by himself, I believe, um, uh, like solitaire. Now, how does that sound? Well, that sounds like a, it's, it's interesting how I've been doing a lot of research on Beethoven lately. It's, it's interesting how similar uh, that routine is. Some of the greatest artists are some of the most boring people. And um, and I can and it's boring for a reason because they need that discipline. They need the discipline of the daily of of the daily walk and having meals at very specific times and having rhythms. And of course, it, and that helps a lot because you know that okay, because it's so easy to feel overwhelmed and like how am I going to get to something? And that way, you can work on something without worrying about how the other things are going to be dealt with because there's a time for that. And uh, and I think that, in a way, is a great lesson for all of us as, as we try to manage our lives. So, yeah, I wouldn't. That would that sounds that sounds pretty good. I like that two hour two hour daily walk. Sounds like a good idea. I mean, when it's funny because when you're talking about um, day in the life of Tchaikovsky, I was thinking, well, it would have been cool to be the guy who opens Carnegie Hall. Um, <laughs> and something you mentioned there, which is really important that composers like Tchaikovsky understand, is that while inspiration can strike, writing music is work in the sense that you have to set time aside and do it. You need to do it every day for hours. Maybe you'll have 100 hours of work and maybe two hours are usable. But those two hours can be, that could be Swan Lake. Right. As they say, 90% perspiration, 10% uh, inspiration. That's, that's <laughs> That sounds about right. Yeah, that's something like that. Now, we're getting to the, the final years of his life, um, kind of the last five years. He died early, early-ish at the age of 53. There's some interesting things here that happen. This whole time, he's communicating with Nadezhda von Meck. I mean, they're writing each other almost every day at times. And she now has been supporting him with these stipends every month for, for, for years, and she can no longer financially do it. She's, she's run into problems. She's lost her money. And she writes um, Tchaikovsky this letter saying, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Please don't be mad at me. And Tchaikovsky writes her and says, 
Your friendship is everything to me. It's more important than money. Don't worry. I will be perfectly fine. It's going, I'll definitely be losing some money, but don't worry about me. And this was the thing with Tchaikovsky. I thought he was a genuine, kind, just gracious and loyal person who valued friendships and human interactions over financial gain. Yeah, you could imagine some composers that won't be named, you know, would just sort of drop, never write back, you know. Yeah, it would just sort of like drop, okay, you're no longer of any use to me, uh, forget about it, you know, and uh, you led me on and that that's it. And uh, Tchaikovsky really valued human interaction, really valued um, uh, his uh, ethics, really, and there's an empathy there and a graciousness there that's uh, that's all too rare among, you know, the really great geniuses. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean he might not get a little salty in his own writings for himself in his diary. In 1891, he is 51. He goes on tour in the United States. He's in places like um, New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, and even Washington, D.C. a bit. He goes to Baltimore, and he writes this in his diary. I love this. He says, Baltimore is a very pretty and clean city. The houses are not large and all have red-collared bricks with white marble staircases at their front entrances. Before anything else today, we took a tour of an enormous piano factory. And from there, we traveled to the central square with a wonderful view of the harbor and the city. So far, so good, right? Thence to the Peabody Institute. This enormous, handsome house was built with the money of the tycoon Peabody. It consists of an enormous library, open to everyone, a gallery of paintings and sculpture, which are exceptionally poor and wretched. But that does not prevent Baltimoreans from taking pride in it. (laughs) I can see Tchaikovsky on this tour, some... Guy in Baltimore's, you know, showing him around the the Peabody Institute, and they get to these paintings, and he Tchaikovsky's maybe he's with a friend in Russia, and they say, you know, they're saying something, and it's, it's beautiful, right? Oh yeah, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> um, and he, but he went on and called the exterior of the conservatory just absolutely beautiful. But it's amazing that this person Tchaikovsky was also here and experiencing the same harbor we see in Baltimore, and some of the same sights. That that is amazing. That is, that that I mean, it it really is. I mean, when you think about you know him touring the United States at that time, when the United States was really settling into the infrastructure that is still here with us, uh, he was here at the at the beginning of it all, um, like the opening, you know, like Peabody and Carnegie Hall and and uh, and what was in the birth of what was going on in Boston. And, uh, and you know, <laughs> he definitely had an opinion about it. Oh, yeah. These are his final years. We have The Nutcracker, which we've we mentioned before. And I think we'll be enjoying a future episode on Classical Breakdown coming up soon. But he's also really recognized for his achievements. In Russia, they're loving his music. He is this now international star. He receives a honorary doctorate from Cambridge. He's given this um, Order of St. Vladimir. He's now part of the nobility in Russia. Now, here is something that I think just sends home the idea that Tchaikovsky was a just gracious, awesome person. Remember the name Fanny uh, Durbach that I mentioned in the beginning? Yes. His first governess? It's now 1893. It's the final year of Tchaikovsky's life, which he didn't know, of course, but it's now been decades that he's written to Fanny Durbach and... He's not seen her in all this time. He left when he was like seven. Now he is this international superstar. And and now at this time, she is in her in her old age. He writes her 
And then he travels and he goes to her home and they spend time together for a, a little bit. There was no gain from this, no financial gain, no. There was nothing in this for him, but he just truly felt this connection and was loyal to this woman who taught him on the side from his family, just taught him on the side for a little bit when he was like six or seven. Well, it's so interesting who Tchaikovsky did bond with and who Tchaikovsky did treasure in terms of his his relationships and his loyalties. And even though romantically, you know, with the marriage, it didn't work out so much. And of course, he had a mixed relationship with his own mother. Apparently, his own mother was very cold and um, there was no, so, no you know, real affection there. So women who did step up and did show caring towards Tchaikovsky, uh, Tchaikovsky treasured that and acknowledged that because I, I think that's what he considered one of the great uh, human traits that he wanted to cultivate. I mean, you can hear that and you can see that in all of his correspondence. And that's the thing we were mentioning, the correspondence. At this time, Tchaikovsky's writing and he's being so nice to and, and developing these relationships. He doesn't know his own legacy. He doesn't know how we would be thinking of him in centuries. He, he was not predicting, I'm sure, that we would be sitting in a studio separated by glass maybe, but talking about his own writing. So he's very genuine in this. There's no reason for him to think that people will be reading these letters centuries later. It was common at this time for people to have correspondence published, you know, famous people after their after their death, but I don't think he could have predicted all of this when he's just writing this. No, not not at all. I mean, it's uh they didn't really think think that way, which is not to say that Tchaikovsky was he was definitely conscious of his legacy. He was definitely I mean, that's why composers compose, you know, when they why they write certain works and not others. Um and why they have a certain attitude towards publishing and and documentation and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, and this is why I, I'm convinced that Tchaikovsky, you know, did not commit suicide because I think he, he still had more to go. Like he wasn't, he wasn't anywhere near done and he still had lots of work to do that, that he had time to worry about his legacy later on. You know, he had time to, you know, sort all that stuff out. He was just in the process of it. He was in the thick of it when he was in his 50s. And with that, we're brought to the final days of his life. He premieres his Symphony Number no. 6, the Pathétique Symphony, and just days later, he would die, November 6th, 1893. And there has been conspiracy over his death. People thought, saying that he committed suicide over something about being gay or a just a traumatic, depressed artist. And then there's definitely some problematic things in those in that thinking. But he died of cholera, as well. That's the same way his mother died when he was 14. His father also got cholera at that time and almost died. Millions of people, tens of millions, I believe, in Russia in this century would die of cholera. And perhaps we'll never know the exact details of everything, and that's okay, but it seems like the most logical thing is that he was a victim, like tens of millions, of this disease. I think everybody wants to project something more dramatic onto him because cholera seems like such a you know, relatively ordinary way to die you know, at that at that time, and also, and there was such passion and such, it is, especially when you listen to the pathetique in that last movement, you, it does feel like someone who's in the in the depths of of despair. And yes, it was not not that it wasn't a portrayal of his emotions, but still, if you're really despairing, you don't you're not composing. If you're really despairing, you're not composing at all. It's uh, you're. You know, Tchaikovsky was pouring that 
um, his emotion into and channeling that into his art. And the fact that he had the strength to do that um, and uh, and presided over that performance just a few days before his death meant that he was, you know, it, it's a way of, it's a cathartic um, thing. So you can go on, so you can uh, continue to live. And so what happened to him, I mean, it's definitely a tragedy. He was definitely was gone too soon. And it's definitely a tragedy that he died of color and that so many people died of color. And yes, he also definitely had issues and had um, and was very fraught emotionally. But I think in a way, that's just a testament to what a great composer he was, that he was able to channel all that into his music. He's 53. He's really at the height of his fame. And after this symphony premiered, he's just like that. He's gone. And it is kind of this national tragedy I think in part, a lot of people had almost to a sense bullied Tchaikovsky and now it's realizing now he's gone. We've we've lost this artist too soon. He definitely struggled with what seems like in his writings with issues with um, mental health and other things, but it was just tragic and also tragic for people like if you think of Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky was a champion for Rachmaninoff when he was very young, which is weird to think about because when I think of Rachmaninoff, I think of 1930s with the Boston Symphony or early 1940s. But back at this time, Tchaikovsky was very encouraging to the young Rachmaninoff. And uh, other composers as well. In fact, um, there's a story about the first performance of Eugene Onegin, uh, his opera based on Pushkin, was, uh, well, his first performance in Germany was conducted by this 20-something named Gustav Mahler. And, um, and Tchaikovsky said, he, I don't think he ever heard a note of Mahler's music, but he said, this guy's a genius. So he recognized it. He, and again, that's not also something that's not common among artists is to be that gracious. And so we can only imagine that if Tchaikovsky had lived into the 20th century and had seen, and, you know, and if he had lived to 80, he would have seen, you know, Stravinsky come up and he would have seen how where music was going to go. And he would have uh, been, he would have been part of that conversation. And in a way, he already was. And with that... We are going to get into next his music, how it's different, how Tchaikovsky stands apart. That's right after this. Can't get enough Tchaikovsky? Then listen to episode number 11, where Nicole Lacroix and I break down his colorful work for a piano called The Seasons. And make sure you're subscribed to Classical Breakdown so you don't miss our special episode on The Nutcracker this December. Tchaikovsky's music was unique in several different ways. There's a lot of things that we can focus on, things like repetition, orchestration, how the instruments and notes go together, also with harmony and melody, and especially with the emotion that Tchaikovsky brings, and sometimes, or definitely sometimes, the the rhythm. So James, I have some examples here. I know you have some for me. Let's start with the Symphony Number no. 4. This he wrote when he was 37, 38 his first movement has a lot of things that demonstrate several of these qualities. First, the opening. It's magnificent. This sounds like to me he's using the orchestra as one instrument. We have horns entering, then they have this descending line, and joining in seamlessly the trombones and then the tuba. It sounds like one weird big instrument that's just extending across the whole range.
and if I'm going to kind of take things to the next level, I think of what we talked about much earlier, the orchestrion, that machine that his family had, maybe his first introduction to orchestral music. It's an organ, essentially. And so all of the lines all have this same kind of texture or timbre to the sound, although they're, they're different parts. And the way he treats the opening there, kind of like one machine, is very, very powerful. And going further after this, there is this line that's introduced by the strings. If that opening is how sometimes people refer to it as fate, this next line here in the strings, it's so emotional. It is mankind pleading for mercy. And another thing to think about here is, one, we've got this emotional side, but what he's doing with the music oftentimes is very simple. There's not a lot happening at once. There's kind of two lines, the main part and then the second part, which isn't just kind of a accompaniment, but really kind of guiding the first part. Well, here, that'll make sense when we listen to more of these, but listen to just the pleading sound in this next line. a lot of the music that we love today, pop music, I mean, pretty much anything, repetition is key. All of your number ones on the charts, it's a simple hook with a lot of repetition. John Lennon knew it. Um, Paul McCartney knew it. Max Martin, that's a name no one knows, but he's written pretty much every number one in the last 20 years, it seems like. That is super key. And Tchaikovsky is able to repeat things but it's never just stale, repeating something the same way. The voicing will change. It'll go to a different instrument. And it always gets bigger and more emotional. He also uses, in addition to repetition, sequences, which can be thought of a little bit different. Basically, you can think of just a short little line, maybe like a sentence with language, and it's repeated in different ways. Maybe higher, maybe lower, maybe by a different instrument, maybe just going up by a couple of steps over and over and over again. And he uses this to to build tension. Now, that's some of what I like about the first movement and the fourth symphony. What do you have for us? Well, one of the things, for me, Tchaikovsky, yes, he was amazing in orchestral writing. And I think the piece that sort of uh, threads the line between orchestral music and chamber music the best is the serenade for strings. He said that this work was an expression of love. And one of the things that's interesting about Tchaikovsky, I mean, when he wrote the Fourth Symphony, that took a lot out of him. He he did not take um, sort of naturally to the symphonic form. And so he wrote works like orchestral suites. And by doing that, by putting it, by giving these works a different name, it almost took the pressures off and it lowered the stakes and allowed himself to... um, really sort of enjoy the process a little bit more. And and when you hear this, you sort of understand why chamber music wasn't quite enough for him because he needed uh, that lushness as well. And But it also gave him the, the nimbleness to be able to create this really, really joyful work. You can just hear him, you know, you're talking about, you know, pop music. It's kind of like um, Tchaikovsky singing All You Need Is Love. Mm-hmm. 
And again, like what you said before, it's one instrument, and you can you, you can and you can feel that it's it's one instrument playing, and when a string section uh, plays that as a as a unit, it's a. Uh, it's really a work for string orchestra. Like there, there really isn't anything else quite like it. I love the serenade, and these are all works that I have to say. Get some headphones, put them on, listen to the whole thing. It is a experience in and of itself. And this next one, we can gotta go back to his first masterpiece. That is Romeo and Juliet, because there's some great examples of how he uses repetition. And to start with, actually, the famous Romeo and Juliet love theme, and this is where I was talking before. Everyone knows this. You've seen it in cartoons and movies and stuff, even if you don't know the name of it. But we'll hear three examples as this repeats each time, and something a little bit different happens each time. Let's hear this the first time this love theme is introduced. And in the background, we've had some light accompaniment, some very soft chords, I believe, in the horn, some pizzicato. When it comes back, listen to how it changes and listen to what the horn is doing. We now have the theme in a different voice, these higher flutes. We have the horn pushing the harmony and the whole texture of the key going down, and it's outlining the whole thing. And now the accompaniment is a little bit different, and that continues. He builds onto all of this, and you can hear that horn. It's still in the background. There's still that element of dance for this big payoff. And then he builds it back up again for another huge moment. But this is something Tchaikovsky, I think, just really knew how to do well, always leaving, leaving you a little bit wanting more and driving you to the, um, to the next place. And, of course, we still heard in the background there that horn driving the harmony. I think people who aren't, who are sort of vaguely knowledgeable about Tchaikovsky know this work, but, you know, or a little hazy on the details. I think a lot of those assume that this is a ballet or an opera and, um, and are surprised to find out that no, it's just a piece for orchestra. And because he gives you everything, you don't really need anything else. It's just, it's all in the music and, and sure you, you, I'm sure you you could dance to it. It's been danced to, and uh, you could even you know you could you know use excerpts of it in the stage production. But really, it tells the story so beautifully well, um, and and so completely. And when you hear it, it's just you know 20 minutes long, and it feels like a complete experience. Um, and oh yeah, it's uh, it's it's and it, you know and it's it's the perfect symphonic poem. Well, in closing, James, all I have left is like, a simple question. Have you ever heard Tchaikovsky speak? No. Well, I'm not going to play it for you right now. It's kind of hard to hear just over this format, but I'll put a link on the show notes page. In 1890, a colleague of Edison went over to where Tchaikovsky was and actually recorded Tchaikovsky speaking. It's You have to look at a transcript to understand what's going on because it, it, it's... 
it's chaos, but there's some singing, there's some whistling, and Tchaikovsky is actually speaking. You get a little glimpse of, of his voice, so I'll put that on the, on the show notes page. Do you have anything more for Tchaikovsky? If you're a fan of Tchaikovsky, uh, there is more to go. There's more depths to go, and uh, that's one of the great things about Tchaikovsky is that whether you know him, if, if you know his great big works, you should check out some of the lesser-known works, and if you think you know him because you think, you know, because you sort of take him for granted, don't take him for granted. Uh, he's one of the great composers, and you should, uh, and he rewards deep listening. Perfect. Thank you, James. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss our special episode on The Nutcracker this December. If you have any ideas or comments, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.